Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. appointed Edwin Steers, a former federal prosecutor, as associate trustee. He chose Frank Jackowitz, an IBT for f- member for 46 years. Prior to the 1998 union election, he received compensation of $1,467 a week for full-time work after that $150 an hour. Steer pursued three reform strategies. First, with Jackowicz's assistance, he sought to provide the membership effective representation. Second, he endeavored to expose past and present exploitation of the union and its pension and welfare funds. Third, he encouraged local 560 members to participate in the union affairs. Steers established contract negotiation committees with rank-and-file members. He maintained an open-door policy urging members to bring complaints directly to him. He started a union newspaper, the 560 Free Press hiring a professional journalist as the editor, retained most of the business agents appointed by Jacobson, some of whom had received training at the IBT Leadership Academy. After two years of union administration by the trustees steers scheduled an election having craft specific meetings and allowed candidates to meet more of the rank and file members he held training sessions on the rights and obligation of union members and union officers on the ibt constitution and local 560 bylaws and set up fair election procedures the Provenzano group fought to retain its grip on Local 560. It organized Teamsters for Liberty, TFL, a self-proclaimed civil liberties organization dedicated to the termination of the trusteeship and the prevention of the government takeover of our union. The TFL circulated petitions. It wrote to and met with government officials, invited public officials, labor leaders and celebrities to its rallies, published its own newspaper, and retained attorneys to attack the trusteeship. The TFL dominated membership meetings. It selected former local 560s President Michael Scarra, the Provenzo handpicked successor as its candidate for president, and Joseph Sheridan for vice president. 
Steer and Robert Stewart, chief of the Newark Federal Organized Crime Strike Force, went back to court to prevent Scarra and Sheridan from running for local 560 offices. The government charged that Scarra was the designated representative of Matthew Ironrola, a capo in the Genovese crime family. Judge Ackerman requested that another judge hear the case. The federal prosecutors sought to prove Sheridan had been responsible for negotiating a sweetheart contract between Local 560 and Walsh Trucking and Consolidating Company in 1978 and that thereafter, Scarra and Sheridan arranged sweetheart contracts with Walsh Trucking. The government presented evidence on Scarra's mishandling of members' grievances against New England Motor Freight, NEMF, in support of Local 560 Sweetheart contract with NEMF. According to Judge Debevies, the government would unquestionably be irreparably injured if preliminary injunctive relief were not granted. All the government's work will have been expanded for no purpose if an election returns Local 560, Genovese family, and its minions. On September 1988, the judge issued a preliminary injunction barring Scarra and Sheridan from running for union offices. The Provenzana group did not give up. It chose Daniel Scarra, Michael Scarra's brother, and Mark Sheridan, Joseph Sheridan's nephew, to carry the banner for the Provenzano group. They won by a two-to-one margin. It appeared that members preferred to be represented by individuals backed by the old regime than by reformers supported by the government and the court-appointed trustee. In February 1990, Debevis granted the motion to oust Scarra. Two months after the judge removed Scarra from his business agent position, and after a two-day trial, Scarra was barred from holding any office or position of trust within or otherwise endeavoring to influence the affairs of Local 560. Still, Scarra had to de facto power. The day after Judge Debevis barred him, Scarra met with executive board members Daniel Scarra, Robert Marla, Peter Granola, and Alfred Belly to settle a dispute between Belly and others. The board still thought of Scarra as the leader. Jobs were still awarded according to members' loyalty to the Provenza slash Scarra clique. During, the December, during a December 1990 membership meeting to nominate delegates to the IBT International Convention, TFL supporters physically assaulted a Scarra critic. In September of 1992, after becoming aware that Michael Scarra was still associating with executive board members Robert Merritt and had attempted to defraud the benefits fund, Steer and Stewart obtained yet another court order, providing that the local 560 executive board be expanded to seven members. Robert Merritt was forced to resign. Alfred Belly became president and Peter Grinella the secretary-slash-treasurer as they had shown autonomy during their careers. In 1994, the board removed three of its members for not fulfilling their fiduciary duties to members. 
Between 1995 and 1998, Steers had 18 individuals charged with misconduct or resigned. In 1998, Steers decided to hold elections for the board. Three slates ran, the first that of the current board, the second Michael Scarra and Daniel Scarra's nephew, the third Alfred Laurie, a former office manager during Scarra's administration. To maximize participation and minimize intimidation, Sears used mail balloting. It had 46% participation by the 4,400 members, with the current board receiving 55% and Scarra receiving 20%. In 1999, Brown was sworn in by James Hoffa, IBT president. On February 25, 1999, trustee Steers the Department of Justice and the Department of Labor recommended that the court end its supervision. The judge agreed, but required the executive board to name Steers as a trustee of the local's pension and welfare funds and required a four-year consent decree that would allow the judge to place the local under trusteeship if systemic corruption or Cosa Nostra influence emerged. The length of the trial was very important. It allowed the judge to see the full depth of the corruption involved in Local 560. Without the trial, a far less strict consent decree might have been negotiated. The judge gave the trustee a wide open amount of authority, thus giving steers an ability to work without having to go to court for approval on each move. Steers, having been a former prosecutor on cases involving organized crime, helped him with others on the case, but he went beyond and involved himself in the day-to-day -day business of the local, which helped him understand the business of a local, but also union culture. It also helped the rank and file to accept him. Steers did not do leadership training to avoid the idea that they were government stooges. He appointed stewards who over time emerged to leadership. He assigned duties as he felt he could give credence to the new leaders. Steer served as trustee for 10 years. This proved to the rank and file that the courts were serious about removing racketeering from the local. In 1990, the United States Attorney General brought a civil RICO case against the New York City District Council of Carpenters located in Manhattan, one of the city's largest unions with about 30,000 members. The council represented 22 carpenter locals. District council officers also served as officers on their home local, drawing two salaries. In the 1970s and 1980s, the Genovese crime family controlled the district council through Vincent Dinopoli, a capo in the crime family who had also become a powerful figure in the drywall industry. According to the FBI, Ted Meredith, District Council President from 1977 to 1981, was a Genovese crime family associate. Meredith disappeared and was presumed murdered as he was suspected of cooperating with federal prosecutors. The two following presidents helped the Genovese crime family control the district council. They were Paschal McGinnis, 1982 to 1991, 
and Fred Devine, 1991 to 1996. The Genovese crime family also ran a drywall cartel. In the early 1980s, a federal RICO prosecution of Meredith Dinopoli and others based on the drywall cartel resulted in a mistrial. On the evening before the retrial, on March of 1982, Meredith disappeared, never to be heard from again. Dinopoli pled guilty. While Dinopoli served a five-year prison term, his brother, Louis, allegedly represented the Genovese crime family's interest. Shortly after Dinopoli's release, he was prosecuted in the Genovese crime family RICO case, which brought many of the top Genovese crime family members on charges among many of operating a poured concrete cartel. Dinopoli was convicted and served another long prison sentence. The Carpenters International Union placed the district council under trusteeship. The trustee merged four locals to create Local 17, thereby purposefully or inadvertently consolidating the Genovese influence over Carpenters' jobs in Upper Manhattan and the Bronx. The trustees chose Local 608's president, Paschal McGinnis, to be the new district council president. He put John O'Connor in charge of the day-to-day -day operation of the district council. In 1990, O'Connor pled guilty to receiving a bribe from an employer and was sentenced to one to three years in prison and fined $25,000. McGinnis was acquitted. September 1990, the United States Attorney for Southern District of New York filed a civil RICO complaint against the New York City District Council of Carpenters, former and current officers, and six LCN figures. It alleged two separate RICO violations. One, that the LCN defendants aided and abetted by past and present District Council officers violated RICO 1962B by acquiring an interest in and control over the union through a pattern of racketeering activity, and two, that the defendants conducted the district council's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity. The first alleged that the defendants unlawfully affected commerce by extortion in that they obtained and attempted to obtain property by violence and intimidation. The RICO complaint alleged a pattern of racketeering activity based upon 54 predicate acts including murders, assaults with firebombs, iron pipes, knives, and guns, appointments to union leadership positions of inexperienced, incompetent, and corrupt individuals, union officials, associations with known organized crime members, the defendant union officers' failure to take action to rid the union of corruption and of their union office, and finally, conspiracy to violate RICO. The second RICO count was based upon 1962C, participating in the affairs of an enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. It also cited 54 racketeering acts, including extortion, illegal payoffs, mail fraud, and operating a benefit fund unlawfully. It sought preliminary and permanent injunctions, one to prohibit the organized crime defendants and those in concert with them 
from having contact with district council or any other labor organizations. Two, to prohibit current, former, and future officers of the district council from committing racketeering acts and from associating with any member or associates of LCN. Three, to appoint a court liaison officer with the authority necessary to prevent racketeering activities and to ensure union democracy. Four, to enjoin union members and officers from interfering with the court liaison officer's execution of his or her duties. Five, to grant the government further preliminary relief if necessary. The government also requested a court-supervised election of district council officers. In March of 1994, the United States Attorney agreed to drop the civil RICO complaint in exchange for significant district council reforms. The parties agreed that there should not be any criminal element or LCN corruption in the district council and its constituent locals. All union officers agreed to be permanently enjoined from a. Committing any act of racketeering activity. b. Knowingly associating with any members or associates of any LCN crime family or other criminal group or with any person prohibited from participating in union affairs. and c. Obstructing or otherwise improperly interfering with the court-appointed officer's efforts to enforce the consent decree. Ken Conboy, a former federal district court judge, was the court-appointed investigation and review officer, IRO. The district council would pay $65,000 each month to cover compensation and expenses of the IRO and the Independent Hearing Committee, IHC. The United States Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America, UBC International, would contribute up to an additional 15000 to cover any costs above 65000 Any disciplinary charges brought by convoy against union officers or members would be tried before a five-person IHC. IRO could investigate district council operations and individuals, bring disciplinary charges against union officers and members, veto any union officer's decisions, recommend organizational reforms, implement new job referral rules and organizing and supervising the District Council's 1995 elections. Convoy's decision could be appealed and overturned only if found to be arbitrary and capricious. His term was 30 months renewable for six months after showing good cause. But after the 1995 election results were certified, his authority over elections would terminate. Each local in the district council had 30 days to implement new job referral rules, which had to include non-discriminatory and non-exclusive job referrals, registering members' eligibility for job referral, a procedure that refers jobs to members who have been on the waiting list the longest effective publishing of job referral rules, keeping accurate records of job referrals, and access to these records by union members. It ended the long-time practice of union officials drawing multiple salaries. It also required that for seven years the district council would give prior written notice to the government and to the IRO of proposed changes to any rules or procedures covered by the consent decree.
Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. Thank you.